0: Chapter five. We move now to the second paragraph of this chapter, Romans chapter five. Our focus tonight is going to be verses six, seven, and eight. We're going to read the paragraph, verses 6 through 11. Here's what we read For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Well, the connection between verse 5 and verse 6 is the word for at the beginning of verse 6. In verse 5, as we saw this morning, Paul has just told us the glorious truth that Christians have assurance concerning their future because the Holy Spirit brings into their hearts, pours into their hearts, the love of God. Just as a little child knows that everything is going to be okay as long as Daddy is there, so we as Christians know that all is well and that our future is secure Because our Father is with us. We experience His love. The more we know of His love, the more we are confident about the life to come. We will behold the glory of God. We will share in the glory of God. How do we know? Because God loves us. And His love is filling our souls via the Holy Spirit. The question that is answered in verse 6 is this one. How does that happen? How does it happen that people's souls are filled with a sense of the love of God by the Holy Spirit? What means does the Holy Spirit use? What instrument does He work through in order to assure our hearts that we are truly loved by God? Paul's answer, not only in verse 6, but in verses 6, 7, and 8, is this one. It is through the message of the cross that the Holy Spirit brings to our hearts the reality of God's great love for us. In particular, Paul emphasizes here that it is the message of Christ dying for sinners that the Spirit uses It isn't just that Jesus died on the cross, and it isn't just the message that Jesus died for people. It's the message that Jesus died for sinners that reveals the great depth of the love of God. And so one way of stating the doctrine of verses 6, 7, and 8, really verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, is this. The Holy Spirit pours into God's people the love of God through the message of Christ's death for sinners. Which is just another way of saying that God uses the gospel to bring into our hearts a sense of His love, giving us assurance about the hope that we have. So here's the connection between objective reality and subjective reality. Something is objective If it is known to be true, it is known to be factual regardless of individual perception or individual thought. It does not matter how you feel. It does not matter what your perspective is. An objective fact is an objective fact. It cannot be honestly denied. One plus one equals two. It just does. How you feel at the moment doesn't change what one plus one equals. Right? That's objective reality. Something is subjective when it is felt, when it is experienced. Two people may read the same book. One person finds the book deeply moving and weeps. Another person finds the book incredibly boring. Which which one is it? Is the book incredibly boring? Is the book deeply moving? Well, it depends on the feelings. It depends on the perspective of each person. That's, that's subjective reality. Well, the love of God experienced in a Christian's heart is a subjective reality. We can't measure it. We can't, we can't define it. We can't quantify it in scientific terms. It's just a reality that we know, a reality that we experience. But what Paul is saying in verses 6, 7, and 8 is that this subjective experience of the love of God that Christians feel, it is based on an objective reality. (laughs) We do not want to be like those who feel that they are loved by God but have no basis for that feeling. We do not want to be like those who erroneously think that all is well with them, but they have no objective basis for thinking that all is well with them, and they are deceived. All is not well with them. We don't want to be like that. We want to be those who are experiencing the love of God because our faith is resting firmly in absolute objective truth. We want to feel the love of God because we are sure we are loved by God and we have objective evidence, namely the death of Christ on the cross for sinners. Now, I said earlier that the main point in these verses is not just that Christ died for people, but that Christ died for sinful people. He died for people who were undeserving of such a sacrifice. And that's really what's being emphasized in these three verses. Look at the terms that Paul uses to describe those for whom Christ died. In verse 6, they are described as weak. While we were still weak, Christ died. Later in verse 6, these people are described as the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. In verse 8, these people are described as sinners. While we were sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. And so the emphasis is on Christ's sacrifice, but it's also on our unworthiness. Of Christ's sacrifice. Here is where the love of God is most put on display. And so, what I want to do is look at those terms, those terms that Paul uses to describe us for whom Christ died. And I want us to move backwards. So, I want us to look first at verse 8, and then we'll move backwards. Look at verse 8 and see that the term he uses is sinners. Christ died for sinners. This word, which is used often in the New Testament, goes back to Aristotle. He's the first one we know to use this word, sinner. It literally means to miss the mark. To miss the mark. Sinners are those who were... We were purposed for a particular target, and we have missed the target. God created human beings to be holy, to bear His image on this earth. That was the target. Holiness, representing God faithfully... Human beings have missed the target. And we've not missed it by just a little. We are very wide of the mark. We are not a basketball that came so close it ran around the rim and it came off. We're the air ball that went way in the wrong direction. And the problem is not in the shooter of the ball, right? The problem is not in the design of the ball. The problem was in the ball itself. And us, sinners, are those who have willfully gone wide of the mark. We choose to do other than what God has commanded us to do. We break His commands. We don't want to do His will. We want to do our will. That's the inherent nature of man since the fall. And so to make the illustration more accurate, we have to picture a basketball player shooting the basketball towards the goal, and then the basketball chooses to go the other direction. And that's exactly what we've done. Sinners choose to turn away from the good, to turn away from the pure, and to indulge in the wicked and the vile. And the point of verse 8 is that Christ died for such people the glorious, perfect Son of God, bore the wrath of His Father for such people as this. Look at the contrast Paul makes in verse 7. In verse 7 leading into verse 8. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Back in 2007, you may remember this. There was a a man in the news who was known as the subway hero in New York City. His name was Wesley Autry. And he was a 50-year-old construction worker who was waiting for his train in the subway station. He had his 4-year-old daughter and his 6-year-old daughter by his side. And while they were waiting for their train, a 20-year-old young man that was nearby suddenly fell into a seizure and collapsed on the ground, his body convulsing. Well, Wesley and two nearby ladies immediately ran to assist the young man, and they managed to, to get him up on his feet, and then suddenly the young man stumbled and fell off the platform onto the tracks of between the two rails. It was at this time that the train appeared. The number one train appeared, headlights on. Wesley had only a moment to decide what he would do. And in that moment, he jumped down onto the tracks and threw himself on top of the young man. He pinned him to the ground, even as the train hit its brakes. One train car, and then a second train car, and then a third, a fourth, and... Finally, a fifth went over their heads, the fifth one stopping on top of the two men. Onlookers on the platform were screaming. Wesley's knit cap was smudged with grease from the car above, but he and the young man were safe. He called out, We're okay down here, but I've got two daughters up there. Let them know that their father is okay. And so Wesley Autry came to be known as, as the subway hero. He was willing to risk death in order to save another man's life. And it is good and it is right for us to be encouraged and inspired by what this man did. It was a very brave and courageous thing. But there's an important difference between the kind of sacrifice that the subway hero was willing to make and the one that Christ made for us. There's actually a number of differences, but one I want to draw our attention to. When Altry made that, Wesley Altry, when he made that split second decision to leap onto the tracks and to risk his life to save this man that he did not know, he had no time to think about what kind of man he was saving. All he saw was a fellow human being, right? There was no time to to calculate what kind of young man this was, there was no time for that. He had to act almost on instinct, though his instinct was showed that he was a very brave and courageous man. But what I want you to do is I want you to put yourself in Altry's shoes for a moment. I want you to put yourself in his shoes. You're standing on the subway platform. You see this young man lying on the tracks, about to be hit by an oncoming train. Now, suppose that all of this is happening... In slow motion, you have time to think about what you're going to do. You have time to reason in your head, should I risk my life to save this young man or not? Also, I want you to suppose that you know this man. He's not a stranger to you. You've known him for a long time. And you know that he's a fine fellow. (coughs) Excuse me. When Paul uses that word righteous and good in verse 7, he's not talking about somebody who's perfect. He's not talking about perfect righteousness or perfect goodness. He's using those words to talk about someone who is characterized by admirable traits. So suppose that this young man is what we would call a a fine young man, a good example, a real example of of maturity and responsibility. Suppose you know that this young man, uh, he works hard at his job. He cares for the people around him. He's always been obedient to his parents. He, maybe you know he's engaged and he treats his fiancée with, with love and with respect. And You know all this. And as you're thinking in your mind and the train is coming, slow motion, you come to a decision. Am I willing to risk my life for this person or not? What would you do? Paul says one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. In other words, Paul says in that kind of situation, there are still many who would not give their life for the young man. There are still many who, who would act in the natural way. In the natural way, because of the fall, is self-love, self-preservation. It is a terrible thing what's about to happen to that young man, but I'm staying right here. That's the way most would probably respond. But Paul concedes that there might be some who in thinking about the character of this young man, who in seeing his goodness and his way of living, might be willing to risk their life, indeed to give their life for the life of someone like this. But let's change the scenario a bit. To say that you know this man and he is not a fine young fellow. Suppose he is a despicable young man. Perhaps you know that this young man, about to be hit by this train, is a rapist, a murderer, a self-professed child abuser. He is impenitent. He is proud of his wickedness. He wallows in his wickedness. The things that this young man does are too shameful even to speak. This man has the the heart of a Hitler, the pride and the violence of a bin Laden. He knows you, he hates you with every fiber of his being. He despises you. He would do harm to you if he could. Now, are you going to be willing to risk your life to save a man like this? The train is coming. What would you do? This is the greatness of God's love for us. We were wicked and we were detestable in His sight. We hated God. Paul's going to teach that just a few verses down. We hated God. We were filled with pride. We were filled with selfishness. We were an utter disgrace to the world God created. We were the vilest pollutant this universe had ever known. The only part of creation to turn against the Creator. Before we were born, God knew who who we would be He knew how we would wallow in our sins. He knew that we would not love Him. He knew that we would not want His help. And nevertheless, He gave the command for His Son to come and to bear our guilt. God treated His Son, the Son worthy of all glory, all honor, the only person worthy to bask in the love of the Father forever, God treated His Son as if He were that sinner. This is love that God would send His Son to die for sinners like you and like me. The other word that Paul uses here, or another word, is the word ungodly. Do you see that? The word ungodly. This word refuses to someone who will not worship God it can be translated even as irreligious. Somebody who's anti-religion, but the heart of it is they're anti-God. They refuse to give glory to God. They don't want to acknowledge God. They don't want to thank God. They don't want to show any reverence or respect to God. And this characterizes all people by nature. And we know that because we saw what in Romans 1. Flip back just a page or two to Romans 1.21. Remember what Paul told us about all humanity there? Romans 1, verse 21. Verse 21, For although they, and he's describing all humanity, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. All humanity knows that there is a God. Deep down, everyone knows there is a God. Creation preaches that there is a God. Our consciences preach that there is a God. But Paul says there's a pattern to be seen in the human race. Although we deep down know there is a God, we suppress the truth. We refuse to honor Him. We don't want to give Him thanks. And this wickedness has brought upon humanity the curse of futile thinking and darkened hearts. This is the idea of the word ungodly. It is those who withhold from God the honor and worship He is due because we want to be obsessed with self. We want to worship self rather than Him. And Paul was saying, here is love, that these are the kind of people for whom God gave His Son." There was personal enmity in our hearts towards our Creator. Romans 1.30 says that humanity was made up of haters of God. And yet for all of our hatred towards God, God loved us and gave His greatest treasure, His Son, into the furnace of His wrath for our sakes. Church, when Christ tells us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us, He is not telling us to do anything more than God Himself has done for us. He loved us when we were His enemies. He took action for our good when we were His enemies. God has set the example. How do you treat those who despise you? How do you treat those who lie about you? who treat you with contempt, who talk nice to your face but speak ill of you to others? How do you treat those who take advantage of you? How do you treat those who seek to irritate you and to be a discouragement to you? We have good reason, brothers and sisters, to love our enemies and to pray for them and to treat them with kindness because that's exactly what we've received from the gracious hand of God. We imitate our God. We reflect the glory of God when we respond to those who despise us with love. Don't underestimate what the Spirit of God may do when we respond graciously to those who treat us badly. The other word that Paul uses to describe those for whom Christ died is the word weak. There, in verse seven, verse six. I'm sorry, verse six. The word weak. And there are some important differences between this word weak and the other two ungodly sinners. We used to be sinners as Christians, and we still sin now, as you and I both well know. But if we're true Christians, sin should no longer characterize our lives. We have been set free from the bondage of sin. And so our lives should be marked by a growing obedience and a growing love. We should no longer be known as sinners. We should be known as obedient people. Not perfect, of course. Each of us knows how great are the depths of our own sins. But Christians should nevertheless be marked by good fruit. And there will be a day when we will no longer be sinners at all. But for now, we should be fleeing sin. We should be throwing off sin. We should no longer be sinners as we used to be. We should also no longer be ungodly. Indeed, if we're true believers, we are no longer ungodly in the ultimate sense of the word. There are still moments when our flesh acts out and tries to harden our hearts towards God and harden our hearts towards His worship. But ultimately, if we are believers, we delight in giving God worship. We love giving God thanksgiving. We enjoy praising Him and honoring Him, giving Him what He is due. There's been a great change in us. We once were ungodly people. Now, by the grace of God, we're becoming godly people. We once were sinners. But now, by the grace of God, we are becoming righteous people. But this third word, weak, does not only describe who we once were. This word describes who we are even now and will be for the rest of our lives. Even as believers, were it not for the work of Christ, we would be utterly incapable of having salvation and a right relationship with God. That's the meaning of the word weak. It refers to someone who is incapacitated someone who is lacking the strength to do what needs to be done. We do not have in ourselves the ability to make ourselves right with God. Take any sinner in the whole wide world, even if by God's grace that person's heart is changed so that he or she wants to be right with God, he or she wants to be reconciled to God, what can that person do in and of himself to make himself right with God? The answer is we're not for the cross absolutely nothing at all. You see not only were we sinners and not only were we ungodly we were helpless. We were absolutely helpless. We were like the man between the rails of the subway. Suffering the seizure, unaware of what was happening, unaware of the train about to come, unable to move himself or to get himself up. The righteous wrath of God against our sin was barreling towards us, and there was absolutely nothing that you or I could do about it. And yet when we were weak, Christ was strong. Change the illustration. Jesus took the bullet that was coming our way. He imposed Himself into the picture. He went to the cross for sinners who could do nothing for themselves. And He did it because of love. Notice also in verse 6 that Christ died at the right time. You see those words? At the right time. What do you think that means? Why do you think Paul in this context says, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly? Well, some have suggested that what Paul is saying here is, is something like when we say, in just the nick of time. Right? A number of commentators believe that Paul was teaching here that if Christ had not come and borne the punishment of sinners when he did, God's wrath against mankind would have been poured out 2,000 years ago. That God's wrath would have come even then, and you and I would not be here today. You may remember how God told Abraham that his descendants would be afflicted in another land for 400 years. God told Abraham, it is only after this 400 years that I will bring your descendants to the promised land. Why, God? Why why are are my descendants going to be away for 400 years and then you're going to bring them to the promised land? And God told Abraham it was because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. What? The iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. The idea is that there was a certain amount of sin that God was going to allow before his patience would end and his judgment would come. The Amorites were living in the promised land. God was going to use the descendants of Abraham to bring his judgment against them. But God was going to wait until the appointed amount of sin had been reached, until wickedness had grown to a certain level. And on that day, he would rescue his people from Egypt and bring them into the promised land. And judgment would come on the Amorites. It's very similar to what happened in the days of Noah. All humanity was living in wickedness, and then a limit was reached. To use a biblical picture, the cup of man's iniquity reached the brim. And so in Genesis 6-3, God said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. He is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Some think that when they read that, that God's declaring that a man's lifespan is going to be 120 years. But I think it's much more likely that God was declaring there, in 120 years, my judgment's coming. I can bear no more. That is the brink. And that He allowed 120 years for Noah and the building of the ark and the animals. And then, when iniquity was at its peak, He brought judgment. And so the argument is that such a time was being reached In the first century, after all, not only was wickedness rampant over the whole earth, but even God's chosen nation, Israel, was making a mockery of God in the first century. Then when we consider the great evil with which people treated the very Son of God, you can see why some would believe that had Christ not gone to the cross, God's judgment would have been unleashed on the earth. But instead of that happening, God sent His Son to the cross. His righteous wrath against the sins of His people were fully vented. And so these people believe that Jesus died in just the nick of time and saved the world from the judgment of God in the first century. Now, there are some parts of that view that I do not completely disregard. I don't think that's probably the best way to read the passage. I think it's a very interesting way to read the passage, but I don't think it's the best way to read the passage. I think that when the passage says, at the right time, I think it means right in the sense of proper, at the proper time, at the appointed time. The idea is that Christ died just when God determined He would die. And if this is right, the point being made in verse 6 is that this great expression of God's love was carefully planned and carried out. In other words, it's not as if God saw the sinfulness of man and then panicked and had to figure out frantically what He was going to do about it. No, no, no. The Sovereign One, the Most High, the One fully in control, He worked out His plan of love and He worked it to perfection. Christ did not come earlier than God had determined. Christ did not come later than God had determined. He went to the cross at the very hour God had determined. Friends, God's decision to send His Son to die for sinners was not a spur-of-the-moment decision. He was not acting out of quick instinct with no time to think about what He was doing. God had all eternity passed to contemplate the wickedness of the people for whom His Son would die. And yet He still sent His Son. He still gave His Son for our sakes. One truth that is very clear in these verses is that when we think about the cross of Christ, we ought ultimately to think of the love of the Father. Do not be like those who see Jesus as the loving member of the Trinity and the Father as the angry, grumpy member of the Trinity. That is not true. There are some who, whether they admit it or not, when they think about the Trinity, they think of God, the Father, as the one who's angry and full of wrath, ready to strike people down with lightning bolts, and then Jesus is the one who loved us. And just when God wanted to to hurt us, Jesus stepped in the way. and, And thank you, Jesus, for loving us when the Father was against us. That's not the gospel. And that's not the teaching of this passage or the Bible. The cross is about the love of the Father. The love that we see in Christ in going to the cross is the love of the Father. Jesus is the image of God. When you see love in Jesus, you're seeing the love of the Father. God's holiness demanded that He punish sin, and it was right that He should do so. But God the Father so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son That whosoever would believe would not perish but have everlasting life. When you think about the cross and you think about all that took place there for our sakes, you should see the love of the Father for you. Isn't that what the Spirit uses to cultivate love in our hearts, to give us an assurance about the hope that's ahead of us? Yes, we are sinners. Yes, we are ungodly. Yes, we are deserving of hell. But God looked upon us with pity and with mercy. He looked upon us with compassion and with genuine love. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. I want to close with some adapted words of application from Charles Spurgeon in the sermon that he preached on this passage. This was his application. He says, Christian, you believe that your sins are forgiven and that Christ has made a full atonement for them? What then shall we say to you? Well, we say first, what a joyful Christian you ought to be. How you should live above the common trials and troubles of the world. Since your sin is forgiven, what matters what happens to you now? I think you can say to God, sin sickness, poverty, losses, crosses, slander, persecution, whatever you will, you have forgiven me, and my soul is glad, and my spirit is rejoicing. And then Christian, if you are truly saved, and Christ really did take your sin, while you are glad, you should also be grateful and be loving. Cling to that cross which took your sin away. Serve Him who served you. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Yes, sing your praises. Declare, I love my God with zeal so great that I could give Him all. But sing it not with words unless you really mean it. Oh, do mean it. Is there anything in your life that you do because you belong to Christ? Are you never anxious to show your love to Him through some expressive tokens? Love the brethren of Him who loved you. If there be a Mephibosheth anywhere who is lame or in need, help him for Jonathan's sake. Remember how David Help the son of Jonathan because Jonathan was dead and yet Jonathan had been such a friend. He's making the point. He's saying, look at the love that Jesus has shown to you. Who that belongs to Christ can you love to show love to Christ? If there be a poor, tired believer, try and weep with him and bear his cross for the sake of him who wept for you and carried away your sins. And again, again, Christian, if this be true that atonement has been made for your sins, then tell it, tell it, tell it. We cannot all preach, say you. No, but tell it, tell it. I would not prepare a sermon, okay? But tell it. Tell out the story. Tell out the mystery and the wonder of Christ's love. But I will never have a congregation, okay? Then tell it in your house. Tell it by the fireside. I have none in my house but little children. Well, then tell it to your children. Let them know the sweet mystery of the cross and the blessed history of Him who lived and died for sinners. Tell it, for you know not into what ears you may speak. Tell it often, for thus you will have the better hope that you may turn sinners to Christ. Lacking talent, lacking the graces of oratory, Be glad that you lack these. Glory in your infirmity, that the power of Christ may rest upon you. But do tell it. Brethren, I do not like to have members of the church who feel they can throw the responsibility on just a few, while they themselves sit still. This is not the way to win battles. If at Waterloo some nine out of ten of our soldiers had said, we need not fight, we'll leave the fighting to just a few, let them... I'm sorry. We'll leave the fighting to the few. There they are. Let them go. Let them do it all. If they had said that, they would have very soon all been cut to pieces. This isn't how it's done. They must all march to the fray. Yes, even the guards. If they are held back as a reserve, they must be called for. Up, guards. Up and atom. And if there are any of you here that are old men or old women, and you think you're like the guards and you ought to be spared the heavy conflict. I call to you up and Adam, for the world needs you all. Since Christ has bought you with His blood, I beseech you, be not content till you have fought for Him, till you have been victorious through His name. Tell it, tell it, tell it with a voice of thunder, but tell it, tell it with many voices mingling together as the sound of many waters. Tell it till the dwellers in the remotest wilderness shall hear the sound. Tell it till there is not a mountaintop on which the story is not known, nor a ship upon the sea where the story has not been told. Tell it till there is not a single dark alley that has not been illuminated by its light, nor a loathsome din which has not been cleansed by its power. Tell out the story that Christ died for the ungodly. Friends, we want to rest in the love of God displayed for us at the cross We want to think about it often. And as we think about the cross, the love of God wells up in our hearts. We are sure that we are His. And our hope increases and our joy increases. But even as we do these things, as we think about the gospel, let us tell it. Let us share it. Let us not assume that because we live in the Bible belt, these things are old hat to everybody. They're not. There are so many around us every day who do not know this glorious good news. And so may we be moved to tell these things as well. Let's pray.